0: Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Welcome to this special
1: edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans.
2: I'm Christian Mader
3: in Lafayette. And in Baton Rouge, I'm Stephanie Regal. Normally, we're the hosts of Out to Lunch in our respective cities, but during the course of the current public health crisis, we're joining forces from our respective home studios to bring you a statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance.
2: You know, just a few weeks ago, the idea that we'd all stop our lives on the same day and be stuck in our homes might've seemed like the plot of a dystopian series you'd see on Netflix. But now that's really happening, it's giving us an unimagined opportunity, self-reflection. And when things start back up, do you wanna jump back into the same life you were living? That's sort of the question. Or, Or could you use this period of suspended animation to reassess and make some changes? These are questions Dr. Stephen Barnes is asking, except he's asking them about the entire state of Louisiana. Dr. Barnes is director of the Kathleen Babineau Blanco Public Policy Center at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. And he's a member of the Louisiana Revenue Estimating Conference, a government panel that determines income projections that create the state budget. So Dr. Barnes, I'd really like to sort of just jump into it here. you know, the revenue, the revenue estimating conference will meet in May, as I understand it, to forecast how much money the legislature can spend. You know, oil prices went negative yesterday for the first time ever. Sales tax revenue is created across the board. Um, just for perspective, the mayor here in Lafayette told us yesterday to expect a 35% decrease in sales tax sales tax collection for the city of Lafayette. And that translates to millions in decreased revenue here. Um, The state budget relies on sales tax, income tax, and oil revenues to pay the bills. I mean, how much do you expect the state budget will actually shrink?
4: Well, uh, you've covered um, a a very good brief summary of what has been a remarkably tumultuous and fast-moving economic picture. Um, And I've certainly been working hard over the last month or so to track as closely as, as possible Um, just how much this is taking a toll on the economy and and working with some of the other economists in Louisiana to try to bring together a robust perspective on what the potential might be in terms of the real depth of this and and how long this will last. Um, This is gonna be an event that uh, really sets a new watermark for uh, economic challenges and fiscal disruption Um, Just looking back at what is one of the biggest standout disruptions in recent memory of Katrina, uh, we saw about a 9% drop in employment over a period of about four months um, following Katrina. Um, Fortunately, we also moved into a massive rebuilding program, which which helped both recover jobs and bring new dollars into the state's economy and the state's budget. What we're looking at over the last uh, several weeks with unemployment claims translates into closer to 17% of the state's economy, having already stood up and filed unemployment claims. So we're looking at something that's much deeper than that. um, And the duration of this is still to be determined. I'm
2: curious if you could just walk us through a little bit what the, the math actually looks like, and not necessarily in the sense of like what the numbers would be. But I mean, it's not necessarily obvious to me what variables you're plugging in to really benchmark this when you're making this kind of forecast in normal times, much less during a pandemic.
4: Well, it's important to look at the state's budget um, and, and the revenues on an individual basis because some of those revenue streams um, are very closely tied to the economy. Some will be very closely tied to specific sectors such as oil and gas related revenues. Uh, while other revenue streams have a, a weaker relationship and may not move as much. So uh, looking at them on a case by case basis is certainly important. Um, and we know that some of those such as severance taxes and royalties immediately will drop in a big way because of what we're seeing with the price of oil. And that's a relationship that's a bit more direct and, and something that we can anticipate uh, with, with greater accuracy. Um, as we move to other sources of revenue, another big one being sales taxes. Uh, we've seen massive changes in consumption and uh, in, in purchasing habits. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of that has meant a shift away from taxable purchases towards untaxable purchases, with food at home and other uh, essential uh, purchases from grocery stores. Um, so, so that's that's kept some businesses active, but is still going to translate to a, a larger impact on that revenue stream. Um, whereas other revenue streams, while while we've seen a lot of people uh, beginning to file for unemployment benefits, um, and certainly some families are feeling a huge impact from this event on their own budgets. Um, the broader tax base for the income tax is something that doesn't move quite as rapidly uh, over time. And, and so it's important to look at those carefully and that's something we're we're still very much in the thick of that. And, and the two economists that really uh, crunch the numbers for the REC, Greg Albrecht and Manfred Dix, I know have been working very hard on that um, and will continue to try to bring in um, the, the, latest data points that we can on uh, where we think the economy is and where it's headed uh, to, to bring that together for that next REC meeting.
1: Stephen, this is uh, Peter Rashidi I sat on the uh, City of New Orleans Revenue Estimating Committee for over 20 years, but your job is so much more difficult. It's not only a larger area and not a lot of different variables, but we didn't have oil prices to deal with. Uh, what I remember uh, back years ago was that they said that the every dollar change in the price of oil
4: translated to, was it $13 million to the budget? Is that still about what the number is? Uh, that, that's a reasonable approximation. I think that's a number that's certainly been going down over time. Um, and as we look back over a period of decades, we've seen a very dramatic shift in the state's reliance on oil and gas revenues. Now, that industry continues to be an incredibly important economic driver for the state. So even outside of severance taxes, royalties, uh, and, and other oil and gas revenues, the, what's happening in the oil and gas industry is certainly going to take its toll more broadly on the economy, and that will ripple through to affect sales taxes, income taxes, and many of those other revenue streams as well. Um, but but that does continue to be a, a really significant part of the state budget. Um, but, but as I mentioned earlier, something that uh, I think the the economists that are really crunching the numbers for the REC have a fairly good handle on. So I think we'll at least have, you know, it, it'll be bad news for the state budget, but I think we'll have a reasonably good picture of what that might mean for the next year.
1: Stephen, do we uh, hedge our oil position? In other words, kind of lock in prices for a portion of it?
4: Uh, for, from a state budget standpoint, um, there, there are some provisions that'll relate to kind of set, determine prices. Um, but... Uh, but some of those revenues are drawn based on the actual transaction prices. Um, So it varies depending on those revenue streams. um, And uh, certainly the degree to which that has changed now is gonna lead to uh, direct uh, impacts on those revenue streams. And the other thing that's happening is this is a big enough swing in the oil market uh, that we're gonna see significant changes in behavior among those businesses.
3: Dr. Barnes Christian mentioned at the at the beginning, you know, that this would might force us to think about new ways of doing things. I mean, when you talk about tax policy changes or some of the things, I mean, do you see this bringing forth a discussion about diversifying the economy, changing the way we do things or or the reliance, for instance, like the recession of the 80s did to our reliance on oil, you know, and gas severance taxes and royalties and that became a much <clears throat> excuse me, a much smaller part of our budget, right? So, I mean, do we see this maybe changing the way we really do business in Louisiana, economically?
4: I think that there's no doubt that this event is going to change the way we do business in Louisiana. Um, I think we're going to see a, a very large number of small changes that pervade the entire economy. So there are going to be lots of little things that retailers have to do, that restaurants will start to do as they begin to reopen, um, and, and and try to serve their customers in a way that was similar to what they did previously. And when we think about the importance of tourism and, and major events in the state's economy, um, I think those things will return over time, but there are going to be a lot of little things that are done differently to make them succeed and make, the, make their customers feel comfortable. Um, but I also think this is a moment in time when we should be thinking more broadly about you know, where are we headed as a state and how do we push the state in the right direction to really get on a path of stronger economic growth and, and um, embrace the economy of maybe it's the new 21st century, um, a post-2020 economy. Uh, and, and as I've been tracking this event and, and thinking about how it has already affected the economy, I think in many ways we've seen this rapidly accelerate some underlying trends that were already there. So we've, we've talked a lot over the last 10 and even 20 years about how technology continues to um, work its way into different pockets of the economy and change the nature of work. Uh, here we are all today doing what has been a, a live in-person radio show entirely over the internet. Um, that's not necessarily gonna be the new normal for all things, but I do think that as we move on the other side of this, we're gonna see a different balance between doing things the way that we always had done before, and an even greater embrace of how we can use technology to stay productive in a variety of different settings. So I think this is definitely gonna be a a window of time where we see an accelerated pace of change. We've got hundreds of thousands of people who are out of work today who are gonna be rethinking, what do I wanna do in the next chapter of my career? So I think it's also very important as a state, despite the challenging budgetary environment, that we find a way to get those folks reengaged in the education and training system, um, and and get those get that important part of our workforce um, retooled and retrained. Uh, because some of the some of them won't have jobs to go back to. For those that can get back to work quickly, that's great. We want to get them reengaged in in the economy as quickly as possible. But we need to make sure we've got wide open doors to the education and training system so that we can get folks uh, retooled and 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 focus people in a direction that's gonna be productive for the next 10 10 to 20 years.
1: Dr. Barnes, you mentioned the changes in the economy for less brick and mortar, more online sales. Does the state get revenue on online sales?
4: The state does get revenue from uh, the bulk of online sales. Uh, Large uh, retailers uh, for many years have been um, been submitting uh, sales taxes for those online sales among those that do have a presence in the state. Um, more recently, there's been a, a, a legal case that sort of expanded that to, to a great degree. Um, I think there still is um, some, some uh, kind of cleaning up that Louisiana can do in our, in our tax code to make sure that we're doing that in a way that is more comprehensive, um, because that will continue to be an important and growing part of the retail sales environment um, so there's a little housekeeping there that we need to do, and, and again, that's, that's one thing to add to the list that, that of, of issues that need to be dealt with right now uh, as, as we see this as a, as a, a challenging time, but also as a, a moment of opportunity to rethink how we're doing things and make sure that we're doing things as well as
3: possible. And and Dr. Barnes, do we have any feel for, for how long this goes? I mean, like with respect to the industrial construction projects that were going to propel our economic growth for the next couple of years, they're now saying, don't look for anything till 2024. I mean, as, as the revenue estimating conference begins to meet and everything, are y'all looking that far out? How, how long does this go on for?
4: The future is... Always uncertain, but I think now perhaps more than uh, in, it has been in many, many years. Um, there is no doubt that we'll start to see uh, some of the currently idled or slower segments of the economy begin to come back online over the next several months. So I, I do see us starting to, to get things moving again fairly quickly, but it's going to be a slow and bumpy process. Um, I I think we have to be very careful because if we're looking out six to 12 months from now, it's going to be very important that we've got um, things that we've got high consumer confidence and high business confidence, because those are the things that are going to get people back to the marketplace. Those are going to be the things that help uh, give businesses um, the confidence and and, uh, the comfort in moving forward with larger scale uh, industrial projects. And to do that, we know we need to get things moving again, but we wanna be careful to do that in a way that's not, um, that's not pushing faster than where the healthcare system needs to be and the guidance that we're getting from public health officials. Um, so I know everybody's eager to get things moving again quickly. And I think you know, things will start to move fairly soon, but it is gonna be a slow and bumpy process. So
2: it's, uh, economics is an uncertain science for an even more uncertain time. Uh, Dr. Barnes, thanks so much for your time, and best of luck to you. Thank you. Dr. Stephen Barnes is director of the Kathleen Babino Blanco Public Policy Center at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and a member of the State of Louisiana Revenue Estimating Conference. Dr. Barnes, thank you so much for joining us in Out to Lunch, Louisiana.
1: You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana, with Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. If you're in college or if you have kids in school, over the past couple of months you've learned a new word and a new skill. The word is Zoom and the skill is distance learning. Up until sometime in March 2020 if you wanted to get an education you pretty much had to get out of the house and go to a classroom. Now you just have to go to your computer or even your phone and click join Zoom meeting and there you are with the same teacher, the same lesson, and even the same kids in your class and it's all going on in the comfort of your own home. Why would you ever go back to a classroom again? Let's put that question to someone whose life is intimately bound up with its answer. Tanya Tetlow is president of Loyola University in New Orleans. Tanya, when Netflix started up, it didn't totally destroy the experience of going to a movie theater, but it has changed movie going forever. Distance learning by Zoom seems like it might do the same thing for education. Do you see this Zoom classroom revolution as having a permanent effect on education, or is it just a a COVID convenience?
5: I I actually don't see this having an overnight impact on online education. There are lots of students who've been studying online for a good long while, and online education at its best is incredibly interactive and engaging. It really helps a lot of folks who are working full-time and juggling families and other obligations to to to, to get degrees. But... This has been a far more retrofitted online experience for classes that really started on the ground and we're doing our best to teach them online. And at a moment when students are sort of trapped in their houses. So I don't know that they'll have such great um, uh, ideas of what this is, because it's not our best version of online. I also think that a lot of what undergraduate experience offers is about the sense of community of students being together physically. And so they are very much missing that. They learn as much from each other as they do from the faculty. So our job now is to figure out how to replicate that virtually and how to get back on campus as quickly as we can.
1: And Tanya, I don't know if you've made that announcement yet or not. I know Tulane's made the announcement to start up in the fall, but how do you make a decision like that? That's going to have so many components to it.
5: Well, we really can't. I mean, we're all speaking with great hopes and aspirations, but um, I, I have an email about to go to students today that starts with, I really wish I could take away all of the uncertainty that you're facing, but it's not within my power. Um, we are very much hoping and planning to be on the ground in the fall, but I think what we've all come to realize is there's no world where we go back to normal operations, that we will have to do it with this careful social di- distancing, and that um, the nature of a campus is that we are all together physically, that we're in classrooms and dining halls and residence halls. So we have a lot of work to do, and we're working furiously at it to understand the new reality of how we do this safely.
3: Tanya, we've heard a lot from you know, given a lot of guidance to businesses about how they're supposed to do this. Are are the higher education organizations providing any guidance to y'all? I mean, as to what it really physically looks like, especially with respect to, say, dormitories or, you know, cafeterias, how you're going to do this, and at what point do you have to pull the tr- trigger and make the call? I mean, do you have to know for sure by July 1? Because certainly- by August 1, it's too late, you know.
5: I, I, for us, uh, locally, we tend to start mid-August. So, yes, I think early July is when we really have to make decisions so people can plan and make travel plans. Uh, most of our students come from out of state. And um, we are getting guidance, uh, increasing guidance from State public health authorities from um, national associations of education are trying to give that guidance, um, but until we really have some idea of the kinds of density that will be allowed, it is difficult to plan. We are making about eight different plans in the alternative, depending on what the rules turn out to be
2: uh, This is Christian Tanya I you know something that i've observed is that Distance learning has been something that some universities take advantage of as like almost like a profit center. Um, You know, they're able to market further out. Right. Um, I mean, do you anticipate that this I know you said you're kind of retrofitting uh, the Loyola experience now. Right. But, But do you see that maybe this is an opportunity to try and sort of offer a bigger suite of services that might actually help the university in the long run?
5: Loyola did that in the last few years, actually, when we went through an enrollment downturn that was just sort of a function of strategic error and we fixed it. But in the meantime, we stood up online versions of much of what we offer and we did it with our existing faculty. And so that has been a real advantage to us now because it means that more of our faculty are trained on how to do online teaching really well. And it's helped us be more flexible during these times. Um, we are thinking now about the the marketplace of 18 year olds coming to college was already on the decline because there's just a population downturn hitting a peak at 2008 when the recession hit Um, people had a lot fewer children we may see that impact again in 18 years from now and so And then overnight, because of the economic impact of the pandemic, we may see as much as some polls are showing a 20% drop in the students who intended to go to college who will no longer go to college. And so for all of us, there's this incredible shrinking in the market. It will hit each of us differently. Um, But we have to look to how we do certificate programs, how we help them workers, adults who may need to pivot careers because there's this massive unemployment rate of how we offer online programs um, that, that people are able to take in more flexible ways. But you're right. We have to be nimble about this or else all of higher ed is in deep trouble. And there, is some, there are some estimates that of the 4,000 colleges and universities in the country that as many of them as 500 may close within a year or two.
2: So much of of what I take to be how universities, let's say, crassly compete with each other, has been sort of the the, the campus life, right? Going and saying like, well, if we build this great new dining hall, the students will come here. If we enhance the public experience, it'll be wonderful. I mean, clearly, as as we kind of pivot to more universities offering more distance learning options, I mean, how do you separate yourself from something that feels so similar everywhere. I mean, every Zoom call seems to be basically the same, right? So how does Loyola University say, our Zoom classes are better than everybody else's?
5: Part of it is that it isn't just about Zoom classes, it's about really engaging, creative, thoughtful online courses, and that requires an awful lot of work on the front end. So our faculty will be working really hard this summer, um, not just to plan for online courses, but to have to plan in the alternative. And I think one thing we're realizing is that on-the-ground courses will necessarily be hybrid, that to spread ourselves more thinly, we may have half, you know, half the class watches the lecture online one day and then flips um, the next day, that, that we have to be creative in ways that I hope will make our teaching better for the long run, that we'll get the best versions of technology that really challenge us from delivering the same lecture for the same notes you've had for 20 years and make you do it in a much more engaging and specific way. But to answer your question, right, it's not about the famous lazy rivers on campuses. And, and those are the institutions really competing for the wealthiest students who are sort of driven by that privilege. For schools um, like ours, where we have a broad range of of people's uh, financial backgrounds that is sort of representative of the country, so we don't educate only the top 1%, and we have about a third of our students are first in their family to go to college. For us, the competition has been all around price, so we have these high sticker prices of tuition, but we discount very heavily, and the average discount right now for private universities is 50%. Schools like ours are even higher than that. And so um, the problem is at a moment like this, that race to the bottom on price, which is good for students and opportunities, but if it kills enough institutions because we can't actually deliver um, well uh, when we get less and less tuition from each student, it's just not feasible. um, That's the real issue. And that was already happening. And now this may be a giant speeding up of that process this summer.
1: Uh, Tanya, uh, are there meetings? I'm going to say secret meetings or whatever between all the university presidents about what their plans are for the fall? Do you have like uh, surveys or such to see where people are going?
5: Uh, the the New Orleans area university presidents do speak to each other fairly regularly, and and that started. I remember I pulled together the first meeting two days after Mardi Gras, um, that we all realized we needed to be planning very quickly. Um, and uh, I think for us as a Jesuit university, I speak once a week to all the presidents of the other Jesuit universities from Georgetown to Marquette, uh, and we share a lot of planning. But yes, I think everyone is in the mode of reaching out to each other and trying to figure out things we haven't thought of. And, and. Um, really guess at the future. It takes a mix of really good strategy and planning and a crystal ball. And, and Tanya, I know that a lot of schools, you know, I mean, they
3: rely on like foreign students sometimes to pay the full freight that you mentioned. Um, they have, you know, their their profit centers are in things like their dining hall or in their residence halls where they're able to make mark up, you know, or, or through athletics, some of which is going to be canceled. I mean, I just don't see a clear, a clear path forward through this, um, especially when we don't even know, you know, if airline flights are going to be available to get students from, you know, out of state, much less from, you know, around the country. Um, I mean, how bad do you
5: think this might really be
3: for higher ed? it's,
5: It's an existential threat to higher ed. And it's also a threat to losing a generation of college students in ways that will hurt the economy in this country for a very long time, that we will suddenly overnight become less competitive in a knowledge-based global economy. And I feel like this could be the GI Bill in reverse, where we have an overnight, and this time, drop, plummeting of the percentage of Americans who are college educated. So it's, it's critical, and Congress did provide some funding for higher education in the last CARES Act. We're asking for a lot more because we are infrastructure of the economy, not just right now in our direct spending, which is pretty massive nationwide and the jobs we provide, but in terms of educating generations of Americans to compete globally, um, we can't lose that ground.
1: Tanya Tetlow is the president of Loyola University in New Orleans. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on Out to Lunch Louisiana.
5: Oh, thank you.
1: And thank you for joining us on this special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. We've edited the conversations to fit into the time slot here on your NPR station. You can hear longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, or Out to Lunch Acadiana on your
2: podcast app. At some point, we hope to go back to hosting out to lunch around the lunch table. But right now though, our Lafayette out to lunch restaurant, the French press is doing curbside takeout. You can pick up their regular menu items or family dinner. And you can get delivery through waiter or Grubhub. In New Orleans, Commander's Palace is closed,
1: but you can have a range of ready to cook items shipped from Commander's Kitchen to yours anywhere nationwide. Information is at goldbelly.com.
3: In Baton Rouge, Mansters on the Boulevard is open. You can eat at the restaurant where they have 25% occupancy and outdoor dining or get pickup. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Merle. Photos from this show on our website and on social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge.
1: I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. And I'm Peter Ricciardi in New Orleans. Out to Lunch Louisiana is a production of INO Broadcasting. Thank you for joining us today. We'll be back here next week for more Out to Lunch Louisiana.
0: Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. Joneswalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit hancockwhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at mitchellforeman.com.